You are listening to the Krika Lecture Series podcast, produced by the Center for Russia, East Europe, and Central Asia at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. This and other Krika podcasts are available on SoundCloud and iTunes. For more information about Krika's lecture series and public events, visit our website at krika.wisc.edu. Our guest today is Timothy Brick, who is rector of the Kiev School of Economics University. And rector is, I guess, is sort of akin to provost, uh, essentially. So very uh, high-level administrative position, uh, which it, it uh, normally would surprise me that such a young scholar as, as Timothy would hold such a vision. But if you know Timothy, you realize that you know, he's remarkably energetic and uh, dynamic and uh, does fantastic work. So he received his PhD in social science from uh, Charles III or Carlos III University in Madrid in 2013. And uh, that's after he obtained a master's degree in sociology from the University of Utrecht in um, the Netherlands. And uh, he's been visiting, uh, he's had visiting researcher positions at Stanford University, New York, New York University, respectively. Uh, he's been at the Kiev School of Economics since uh, 2018, where in addition to being rector, he's also a professor of sociology and uh, head of the sociology uh, division there, the sociology research group. Um, he's, uh, he's also serves as national coordinator for the Ukraine uh, uh, piece of the European Social Survey. He's on boards, uh, various advisory boards, including the CDOS Think Tank, the uh, Texty.org Texty.org Rating Sellers Project, which uh, he was telling me about. It's very interesting. He's also a co-founder of the public restaurant Urban Space, and maybe he can tell us a little bit more about that in the Q&A period. Uh, he's currently uh, teaching courses as a visiting professor at Northwestern University, so that's why we're fortunate to be able to host him today. Uh, he's been spending his time traveling around the country, meeting with uh, universities. He's also uh, founding member of the uh, Ukrainian Global University Consortium Project, uh, which uh, Madison is a, a member. Um, and uh, so let me talk some about his research, because he's not here for a minute. He's here to tell us more about his uh, research. So he, he, he is a sociologist, which of course makes him near and dear to my heart as a sociologist myself. And uh, he's, he, his main, I guess perhaps, well, one of his core areas of research is the sociology of religion. So he's done uh, several studies of religious competition among different uh, denominations, different, uh, both within Ukraine. Also, he's currently working on similar sorts of topics in the, the context of the Netherlands with some Dutch researchers. He's also done work on labor market competition. So he's got a recent piece on the job market effects of COVID-19 on urban Ukrainian households. Um, he has also done historical work about job, about the earnings of, uh, of um, what was it, the, the earnings um, in what 18th century wages and of male and female domestic workers in the Cossack Hetmanate in Poltava from 1765 to 1769. So in short, his work covers a lot of territories. He's also done some great, uh, what we call uh, public sociology, representing uh, some of his uh, research insights to the general public through op-eds. In particular, I want to cite uh, two of his recent op-eds, which he co-authored with some colleagues. Uh, one recent one, and these are both from the Washington Post. One recent one is uh, called, Is Russia's Wartime Propaganda More Powerful Than Family Bonds? And another one, uh, from that, that's from 2022, another one from 2020 is entitled, Trump's Impeachment is Not Over for Ukrainian Citizens. So I think that was, 
uh, very interesting. So uh, let me then turn the floor over to him. His, the subject of his lecture today is resilience in Ukraine, what we know and what can be done. Oh, thank you. It was the longest introduction ever in, in my life, so thank you very much. And uh, I have a lot of co-authors, you know, so just so you know. It's, uh, I have a lot of co-authors, so I work with a lot of good people, so it's, uh, it's a lot of shared, you know, um, um, achievements. Yeah, and thank you for your invitation, and uh, today I, I will present an overview of what has happened in Ukraine. I know that you pay attention to Ukraine, so you know a lot. Nevertheless, I will, you know, I will spend some time talking about um, some data which we have collected recently, and I will talk about economic damages. Then I refer to some data from the available sociological surveys about Ukraine, you know, to make sense of what happens in Ukraine, what has happened in Ukraine, and only then, but in the last part of the presentation, I will refer to my uh, research as well. Uh, so, so it's going to be like a light presentation, I would say, and it would be nice to, you know, to, to secure more time for Q and A's. Uh, I, I would be very happy to talk to you, um, you know, about Ukraine and future of Ukraine. So, um, this is my university, uh, Kiev School of Economics. Uh, I, I really like this photo. I, I wanted to share this photo with you because these are all our students undergrad students during the admission campaign uh, this fall. So our university is operational. We work in Kiev. Uh, despite the war, we, we can run admission campaigns. We can admit new students. We teach on campus with uh, very strong bomb shelters. And you know our faculty, uh, most of it is in Ukraine, in Kiev as well. Not everyone is in Kiev. Uh, a big part of our faculty is displaced, but they still teach online. And we're very much you know, committed to, to be in Ukraine, to teach, to preserve human and social capital. And I think this is going to be you know, the main takeaway message of, of my presentation, that despite all the war, uh, there are quite, you observe a lot of commitment, a lot of organizations in Ukraine, they're still out there in the fields working. Uh, and there is a paradox, sort of how can you explain that, that a nation is so resilient during the war, and I will try to uncover, you know, uncover this question. So these are some most recent data which, uh, which is available out there. So our think tank is collecting a lot of data about economic damages to Ukraine. So we know that according to the most recent estimation that the overall damages to Ukrainian economy and infrastructure are counted as more than 143 billions of dollars. Uh, most of it is about residential buildings, roads, and bridges. So 37% uh, of these 143 billions are accounted for residential buildings. It's a lot of damage. Ukrainian uh, GDP is about $200 billion. So basically it's 75% of Ukrainian GDP. So you can imagine that the damages to infrastructure is so crucial. Uh, we also know that uh, there are direct damages caused not only you know, to roads, to bridges, buildings, but also to universities, uh, academic facilities. Uh, according to most recent estimations about, you know, more than 1,200 health care facilities were destroyed. Uh, universities, the total damages out of this 143, almost 9 billion is about destroyed universities, university campuses, laboratories, departments. So it's a huge uh, loss. 
the Ministry of Education and Science of Ukraine provides uh, and updates this information quite regularly. So, um, according to their estimation, more than 3,000 uh, educational institutions were damaged. So, this is everything, kindergartens, schools, universities. And if you're interested, you can go to the website uh, Save Schools in UA. This is a governmental website. They collect all this information uh, disaggregated by region. So you can go to a specific region of Ukraine and you can find that uh, 35 schools were destroyed, uh, eight kindergartens were destroyed, and so forth. So you can actually uh, have a good understanding of the data from public sources, and that's how it looks. You know, this is a quite famous photo. So they were published in the um, uh, Nature, and this is a Ukrainian physicist, you know, in, from Kharkiv, trying to, um, yeah, uh, basically, uh, yeah, to deal with the attacks. You know, her laboratory was destroyed completely. Um, so it also means that a lot of efforts uh, have been already done uh, to relocate businesses, to relocate universities, to relocate people. On this map, um, you can see that 16 cities accepted has accepted more than 25 universities with more than 50,000 students. So a lot of movement between countries happening. But the thing that we did not, you know, it did not start in uh, with this current uh, aggression. Uh, Ukraine has seen some influx of IDPs starting from 2014. IDPs internally displaced people. So starting from 2014, with the occupation of Crimea and parts of the Nevsk region, parts of Lugansk region, uh, you know, the numbers of IDPs gradually increased. Now, according to the most recent estimations, about 5 million of Ukrainians are internally uh, displaced. And on this graph, you can see the difference. So there's red lines and blue lines. So blue lines is basically everything that was before this current aggression. So before this aggression, most IDPs were accepted by big cities, like by Kyiv or Kharkiv. But now you see that red lines are kind of everywhere, meaning that there is no exception. All Ukrainian regions have accepted at least some number of IDPs. And it means a lot from the perspective of local governance. It means that you, know, you accept a lot of new people, you have to provide schools, you have to provide healthcare, you have to provide shelter. So all Ukraine is now in one way or another is engaged with uh, displaced people. Um, and I, I thought, you know, to spend some time talking about education because we all are working, you know, in academia, in universities. I thought it would be interesting for you to learn about some uh, development specifically in education. You know, so a lot of universities are bombed and destroyed. You know, you have to move them. So the question is, um, how come? Yeah, so the government appeared to be quite resilient and quite flexible and quick to move universities, to provide them with resources. And the explanation is the same. You know, they did something in 2014. So first relocations of universities already happened in 2014. So they learned, drawing from this experience, they managed to adapt and introduce some changes. So a lot of uh, public universities in Ukraine are heavily regulated by the government. So, and during this aggression, Ukrainian government was very flexible. So they allowed, you know, to uh, postpone admission, for instance, or the admission campaign goes through this standardized test. The standardized test was uh, adopted. It was made in a more kind of simplistic format because kids were not able to prepare to everything. 
the government met, managed to open more than 46 offices in 23 different countries, meaning that now Ukrainian kids, if they're displaced, let's say in Poland or in Germany or in Czech Republic, they can visit a special office to write this standardized test, to go through this standardized test. And more than 20,000 Ukrainian uh, applicants were doing it abroad. So the government managed to pull it off very quickly. And this uh, PhD student, who is coming very soon, she managed to run a survey uh, among these applicants because they were doing things online. So she had access to their uh, profiles. So she was doing some surveys. So maybe we will learn something about them soon. Uh, or even in terms of accreditation, you know, it's a huge bureaucratic process in Ukraine and the government was quite flexible and quick enough to say, okay, we don't care about that, we can postpone accreditation. So, you know, uh, from the perspective of this huge machine, it's actually a very big deal. So they were quite quick in rearranging a lot of bureaucratic processes to make things more easier. And I also think this is one of the reasons to observe a lot of resilience in Ukraine, uh, that it's not just about citizens who were very quick and adaptive, but it's also about the government who was very quick into relaxing some regulations to allow organizations to, to be more productive and flexible. Um, we have very scarce data of, about displaced scholars, but you know we know that about according to the most recent estimates by the National Academy of Science, about 10% of registered researchers from from Ukraine are abroad and you know it's an ad hoc situation everyone tries to find some place elsewhere around the world and find some scholarship or position so it's quite a challenging task um, and uh, yeah and there are still quite a lot of uh, scholars who remain to be in Ukraine for various reasons some of them cannot travel some of them don't want to travel uh, there is a lot of human capital in Ukraine a lot of researchers and scholars and our organization tries to find uh, ways to support these scholars institutionally. Uh, so we developed certain programs uh, um, through the so-called non-residential degrees, non-residential fellowships. You can build partnership with uh, American universities like with George Washington University or UMass. So they can hire Ukrainian scholars as their non-residential fellows, which allows them to, you know, to pay money to Ukrainian researchers, but also to build actual co-authorships and joint research and joint projects. So it, it has worked quite well. We supported almost uh, like almost 40 scholars with with these uh, with these uh, um, projects. So this was about, you know, the first part of the lecture was about the context. I mean. You know, you, you, you follow the news, you know that it's quite complicated, but now I think we can at least start talking about the resilience in Ukraine and possible, possible ways to explain it. So uh, I will refer to some surveys that were collected by, you know, by other people. These are publicly available data. Uh, and these surveys were executed during the first waves, first months of, of the invasion. And of course, it's not very easy to collect surveys during the war because of movement of population and you know availability of respondents and sensitivity of the questions but people were trying to do their best to collect some data so what was available to ukrainian sociologists what they were doing uh, they were referring to the most recent surveys they had so imagine that you conducted a survey just before the before the invasion so you still have the list of these respondents and you can reach out to them again so this was sort of a improvised panel data i would say it like that uh, and this is an example of a survey by 
by the um, Academy of Science, I think. So they had access to, you know, randomized sample before the invasion, and they reached out and they reached to 30% of the sample during uh, the invasion in July. So you can compare uh, what changed in the lives of these people. First of all, a lot of people now, uh, much more people reported that they had either family member, um, some family members fighting in the war or assisting fighters. So before the invasion in the sample, it was about like 5% of respondents. Now it's more than 30% of respondents. Almost everyone, 84% said that they personally knew at least one person at the front. So this is huge. Uh, level of anxiety increased significantly. So there was a question whether people can, well, whether they feel nervous, whether they feel anxious, but also there was these fascinating questions. Do you see uh, nightmares that are war-related? So it was, uh, you know, within the error of sampling error, like 4% of respondents before this invasion answered that they see war-related nightmares. And now it's 34%. So it's, it's a dramatic increase. And uh, about 70% of the respondents said that they lost at least something, you know, maybe they had to relocate because they lost their home or they lost their job, things like that. So it's a, it's a tremendous pressure on Ukrainian society in terms of how people feel, uh, how people are connected with, with the war through personal experiences. And then, uh, the, but despite that, so, you know, in the previous slides we discussed that we know that economy has suffered, yeah? A lot of infrastructure is destroyed. We know that there were some job losses. We know that there are internal displaced people. We know that people have anxiety and war-related dreams. And nevertheless, at the same time, we observe some sort of optimism and sense of social cohesion. So on the following slides, I will refer to the survey by it's a joint project by Kiev International Institute of Sociology, but also um, Academy of Science. This is not panel. This is cross-sectional data. Nevertheless, you, know, you can run some comparison analysis. You can control for uh, sociodemographic parameters of respondents. So there were, uh, they asked quite a lot of questions. So I'm, I mean, I just selected a few. So these questions were about how people feel economically. This is a subjective evaluation, whether they feel that the income they have is kind of okay, matches the level of uh, how, how it's phrased. Uh, regarding the income of your family, how close uh, is it to the sufficient number? Yeah, so that, this is the question. So basically, the number of respondents who said eh, approximately the same to be sufficient or even a bit higher than sufficient, surprisingly increased after uh, you know, after the aggression, so it's and we know it cannot be true. We know that the economy has suffered a lot. Yeah, but this is just subjective uh, expression. That's how people feel. Uh, the same about trust. Uh, the literature, oh, the scholarship uh, out there, usually tells a story that Ukraine is a low trust society. More specifically. Ukrainians do not trust to formal institutions, like to the president, to parliament, to government, to police, to army. And we see that it has changed now. After the uh, invasion, most Ukrainians would say that they trust the president or they trust the military. And on this graph, the, the question is whether the Ukrainians believe that there is a political leader that can you know, lead the country. And again, 
the number, the percentages of people who said yes, we believe that such leader exists, has increased dramatically after the invasion. So you see this growing uh, optimism and support of the government. And I actually like this um, set of um, uh, set of analysis. Um, so Ukrainian sociologists from the National Academy of Science, they have designed kind of their own metric, their own index, uh, which they have uh, applied maybe from the early 90s, starting from the 1994 till present. They collect data on what they call uh, index of cynicism, like to be a cynical person. And the index is built from about 15 or 18 questions on trust. Like, how do you, do you believe that other people lie? Or do you believe that other people are inclined to tell truth? Or do you believe that other people tell truth only because they're afraid to be caught? Things like that. I, I don't remember all the questions by heart, but there are quite a lot of questions like that. Do you believe that cheating is the best strategy to achieve results? So based on that, they produce index of cynicism, being cynical, and they track the evolution of this index from the early 90s. And apparently today, after the aggression, this is the first time ever when this index is in decline, and the percentage of people who are categorized as you know, completely or predominantly cynical has, it has decreased. So again, this points to some sort of uh, evolution of trust, trust into not only formal institutions, but also informal, like to trust in others, general others. And this graph comes from the, um, again, Kyiv uh, International Institute of Sociology. This is more about national identities. So the way the survey works is that people are asked to select uh, a main identification, like primarily main identity from the list of identities. So. Like, do you believe that you, do you feel, do you identify as a Ukrainian citizen? Or do you identify as a dweller of this town? Or do you identify as a person who was born in Soviet Union? So that's how the question is framed. And you can select one uh, identity, which is the closest to you. And here is the percentage of people who said that they feel primarily Ukrainian citizens. And this is the evolution of the percentage. So in the 90s and 2000s, about, you know, from 45 to 50% of Ukrainians would say that they are primarily Ukrainians. The second most popular would be uh, local identity. So even myself, you know, I, I'm also 50-50. I don't know, am I Ukrainian or am I from Kyiv? You know, both of these identities are very strong for me. Uh, we see that after the Euromaidan revolution, there was a slow increase in percentages. So from 50 to 60% uh, increase gradually. Uh, we have another paper on that, so we controlled, we know that the increase is observed in people in different regions, different genders and ages. Uh, and during the war, during this aggression, there was a significant jump, you know, from 60 to 80 percent. So, But the question is, um, you know, you can address the question in a way that maybe this is just rally around the flag effect. Yeah? So people feel something during the war, there is mobilization. They feel more patriotism. They feel more trust in the president. So maybe it will disappear. Yeah, and I will try to address this in the in the following slides. So before that, I get the final observation, which is quite interesting: is that there are different surveys, uh, different sources that also tells that it seems that Ukrainians, at least in their public opinion, still favor democracy as a political regime. 
So when Ukrainians are asked if they support democracy, quite a lot of Ukrainians would say yes. And uh, there is a whole project led by Henry Hale from uh, George Washington, Olga Onuch from Manchester, and Volodymyr Kulik uh, from Kiev. And they have panel data. And their panel data also shows that there was a gradual increase in support of democracy. Uh, and they observe it even, even in most recent data uh, collection. So the question is, you know, whether this resilience, which we observe through kind of increase of social cohesion, trust to government, trust to others, will it decline? This, or this is just some sort of rally around the flag, flag effect, or will it be sustainable? We don't know. And in history of Ukraine, I can refer to uh, uh, data from Orange Revolution, which happened in 2004. And what we, as sociologists, observed that there was uh, many years of low trust to Ukrainian president. Then during the revolution, there was a very high uh, trust to president, and then it disappeared again. Yeah? So sometimes it goes up, then it goes down. But contrasted with another example, we know from other surveys that from 2014, there has been a trend of gradual increase to local governance. We just see it in surveys that people trust the local government every year a bit more. And this is a trend. It's not just going up and down. It is a stable trend, and it has not disappeared yet. So the question is why sometimes you know, trust goes up and down, and sometimes it's sustainable. I think this is a big question that we are, you know, as researchers, sort of looking at. And here uh, I will refer to research. Uh, it's, it's, um, this is a forthcoming paper. It will be published in um, Journal of Comparative Economics with co-authors. So we, uh, we build a hypothesis that um, administrative reform of decentralization in Ukraine has this very strong impact on uh, social capital in Ukraine, which is very important for resilience. And the idea here is that you know, for many years, before 2014, before the revolution, for many years, Ukraine used to be a highly centralized uh, society from the administrative perspective. So the capital city, Kiev, decided a lot of things, how regions should collect taxes and spend taxes on public goods. It was decided somewhere in the center. After the revolution, the new reform was introduced, decentralization meaning that the new amalgamated communities emerged. Uh, so there are like local villages and towns. They had a lot of freedom uh, voluntarily to come together and to say like, oh, we're neighbors, we're friends. Let's come together. Now we are a community, and we are a self-governed community. And these communities, they have a lot of political autonomy, uh, but they're also a I think like 60% of the tax base collected from local businesses can be retained at the community level, which is huge. Uh, and also it paired with some other reforms. There was a reform of introducing gender quota for local elections, so which kind of made local leadership more you know, uh, diverse. Uh, also, there was a reform of public procurement. So there were quite a lot of reforms that allowed local government to be more efficient but also to be you know, more grounded. Uh, and the idea that, well, uh, because of that, local people are likely to be more satisfied with local government and are likely to be more engaged with, with local government. So the question is, can we test it empirically somehow? So what we have here 
we have a panel data from Life in Transition survey. Uh, so we can analyze respondents before this reform and after this reform. And we can geographically identify uh, their location, geolocation. And the respondents are black dots, and they are scattered all over Ukraine, you know, south, west. So it was a decent randomized sample. And they are allocated in different types of communities. So there are light blue and dark blue. So these fewer dark blue communities, they were sort of pioneers. There were some communities who started this process amalgamation first. And then other communities, they, I don't know, they were too slow, or they didn't want to do it, or they were not so professional. So eventually the government just said, like, okay, we'll, we will just decide. We will make you a community. So you can see a difference between communities who were actual volunteers versus all other types of communities. And the hypothesis is here, so the respondents who, will belo who belong to these volunteering communities, they're likely to see more positive change than other uh, respondents. Um, so uh, yeah, and of course, I mean, as researchers, you can say, well, maybe there is some endogeneity uh, issue. So the question, why these communities were volunteers in the first place? Why did they decide to unite? There were a lot of you know, idiosyncratic reasons for that. Sometimes it was about local businessmen being very smart and entrepreneurial. Sometimes it was about local politicians who were, again, smart, thinking like, oh, we can amalgamate. It will give us more benefits in five years. So they just had this anticipation. Uh, we know we controlled for previous historical levels of trust and previous historical level of political uh, participation, like uh, voting uh, turnouts. And we know that it didn't matter. So these volunteering communities and other communities, they had the same low trust level and the same low uh, political engagement as any other community. So perhaps there was some selection, but it, at least the selection was not correlated with you know, previous levels of social capital. Uh, and then we apply some difference in difference models to, to, to test whether these people who lived in these very specific types of pioneering communities that after decentralization, the likelihood of trust increase or not. And we observe that yes, the trust to local government uh, has increased significantly, but only for local government, not for the president, not for the parliament, but for local government. And we also, uh, uh, I, I don't have it here on the slide, but we also see that there was increase in um, trust to neighbors and uh, general social trust, sort of, do you trust people in general? And it's interesting because we see that uh, sort of this kind of administrative reforms because they make local government you know, more empowered and more efficient. It seems that people are now more engaged locally and uh, it transforms into trust to local government but also trust to local peers, So, which is quite interesting. And there is no increase in, oh, I'm sorry, I missed the slide. But interestingly, there is no increase in satisfaction with some public, uh, public products like road safety or uh, water supply. So basically, the trust to peers increase, the trust to neighbors increase, the trust to government increase, but satisf satisfaction does not increase. <laughs> so it's not like you're happy that, oh, my road or my water is better. It's more like it's really about social capital. It's more about engagement with the government and with other people. 
so yeah, so the idea that I try to, you know, kind of, at least it's kind of our interpretation of the data that social capital has increased significantly in Ukraine after 2014, and you can attribute it to administrative reform. So the administrative reform was very successful in allowing social capital to increase. And my you know, speculation would be that it's a huge part of resilience now in Ukraine. It's not just about patriotism. It's not just about you know, national identity. It's also about the fact that a lot of Ukrainians feel you know, engaged with their local communities and they want to defend local communities. They voted for these mayors, so they want to defend these mayors and, and, uh, and their neighbors and everyone else. Uh, and the final part uh, of the presentation would be, you know, it's going to be uh, uh, not about research, but again about our university and you know, what we are trying to achieve, what can be done, and I hope that we can build some you know, uh, networks here and some partnerships and friendship to do things together. So we believe that you know social human capital, social and human capital are important. So it's you know it's in our values, but it's also in our research. We know it's true. So uh, universities are pillars of human and social capital. So we want to. Uh, that's one of the reasons why we remain in Kiev, and this is one of the reasons we want to make education more accessible and to work with you on research is because it's very important to uh, ensure that human capital and social capital remains in Ukraine. So with that, we can increase our chances to be more resilient in the future. So these are photos of our students, you know, just smart guys who were selected and uh, some guys and girls who, who wanted to study public uh, policy. And now they all are, so half of them are in military in different capacities, uh, maybe as uh, paramedics, but also serving in the front lines. So we need to, you know, invest in this human capital, so then these students and alumni and everyone then actually can can contribute. And as an organization, we are doing quite a lot to support uh, other educational organizations. So these are schools. We, we help to rebuild schools and to build shelters in schools. We helped to rebuild a hospital, not hospital, a clinic in, in northern part of Kiev. Uh, our foundation raised by the end of the previous year, it was $45 million, uh, now it's $55 million to support more than 800 military units to rebuild stuff, you know, to work on sanctions. So my, my, my point here is that universities are actually very important, you know, to, to contribute to, to these activities that are helpful to the government and to local communities. This is the program which um, was introduced it's Ukrainian Global University. Uh, we identify talented Ukrainian students who are displaced. Uh, we pre-select them based on interviews, tests, and then we help to place them to different universities around the world. So University of Toronto, uh, City University London, uh, NYU campus in Prague. So we placed our students to all these places with the idea that they should learn important things to come back to rebuild Ukraine. So this is the premise of, of the whole uh, project. Uh, and this photo was made, I think, like a week ago when I was here. It's like they were waiting for me to get outside of country to start doing fun things. <laughs> so this is a student competition. Not even students, these are pupils. There, there are high schoolers. And these are 
high schoolers from all Ukraine, from Kherson, from Cherkasy, from Kiev. And this is a student competition in how to use uh, ChatGPT, how to apply prompts in ChatGPT to solve, you know, uh, tasks like how to write a better code or how to find a solution like a business model or something like that. So they were given tasks, and the job was to use prompts to to achieve better solutions to these tasks. So yeah. So and again, this photo was made on campus. So we want to invest more, you know, in education, in kids, in bringing more high schoolers because this is the future of Ukraine and you know of, of the free world. Uh, we recently started, uh, together with our partners, uh, we initiated an alliance of six universities. They are private and public, uh, social science and polytechnic institute and big universities. So the idea that together we can work on policies, we can admit more students, we can build stronger international partnerships with you. And, uh, and we, the goal for this admission campaign is to admit more than we have. So currently we have like 300 students and we want to admit 1,000 new students. And for that we will run a zero tuition fee campaign. As a private university, it's very challenging for us because usually that's not the model that private universities have. So usually we have you know, a model that we select the best uh, students and we charge a lot of money. But uh, now we will uh, um, run this campaign on a different model. We will make it a zero tuition fee, uh, and we will accept students for different tracks, more advanced students and less advanced students. Again, because it's very important to make sure that education is going to be very accessible to broader population, to build human and social capital. And for that, we will run a new fundraising uh, campaign. We estimated that we need to raise, like, $2 million to cover everything, uh, tuition fees, but also to hire new people and to, uh, to hire new teaching assistants to help students who are less advanced, you know, and to, to rent some new buildings. So this will be my, you know, uh, my team and our university and charitable foundation and think tank, we will be working all together on, on this campaign. So in the final, I guess, if you want to help Ukraine, uh, please visit our site foundation.kc.ua um, we um, we uh, do a lot of fundraising campaigns to support uh, different causes to support uh, shelters schools clinics students uh, our foundation is registered both in Ukraine and in Washington DC which means it's much easier to do fundraising here in the United States uh, and we, you know, we become very um, central actor in, in providing humanitarian aid. And if you want to learn more, you can just visit this website and, and support Ukraine. Uh, with that, thank you very much for your attention. And thank you for your time. We can talk about everything during Q&A. Thank you so much.